Mark, Mark actually doesn't see his children. Sometimes you hear um, sort of a muffled tapping in the background of an episode. That's actually his kids knocking on the door and him ignoring them. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Tim thinks he's joking. <laughs> Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, host of Talking Joe, the podcast that is the world's leading podcast about G.I. Joe comics that consists mostly of jingles. Now, if you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we are joined by a special guest, Jason Murrell, who is the host of the Order of Battle podcast. And we will be talking about his podcast, all things G.I. Joe comics and the latest G.I. Joe comics news, including Larry Hammer's Ask Me Anything at Reddit and some of the latest books hitting the stands. Uh, He also is joining us to talk about uh, G.I. Joe ARA issue 298, but what we will do is split this into two, and next week we will cover all of the detail of the latest issue, issue 298. Now, with that all out of the way, let's introduce my co-host, as always, it's A Real American Tim. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hello, Tim, and we're not doing it alone today. We are joined with a special Guest. Now, today we are joined by Jason Murrell, host of the Order of Battle podcast, where together with his friend Joel and sometimes his son A, he discusses G.I. Joe, other 18th scale action figures, and in general, what sparks joy. It's a lot of things, but almost always toys. Um, don't ask me where I came up with that blurb. It just came, you know, just, just, just came to me. Uh, welcome, Jason, to the Talking Joe podcast. I appreciate you guys having me. This is awesome. Excellent. It's good to good to have you on. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I uh, often am giving it a listen as I'm out and about taking the dog for a walk and, uh, and some such. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast, how it all came together, and what kind of thing you get up to on it? Yeah, it's more of a conversational podcast between Joel and I. Joel is a few years younger than I am, so he's from a completely different generation of G.I. Joe. And due to some early trauma in collecting, he has sworn off O-ring-style G.I. Joe, and he only collects modern. And because my son won't touch modern, I don't put the money into it, and I only collect O-ring, and we both now collect 6-inch. Uh, so it becomes a fun conversation where we're we're exploring, you know, each other's version of G.I. Joe. Being the elder statesman, I have a lot more comic book knowledge and cartoon knowledge, and he's then telling me about the parts of G.I. Joe that I missed, like Spy Troops and Valor versus Venom. And recently we've gotten into the very lucky position of talking to a lot of the independent creators in our community because we love to just sort of fan over things that make us happy and our wallets cry. (laughs) If you needed to rename your podcast, 
Fans happy, wallets cry. Cry of the wallet. <laughs> I'm trying to convince Joel, who's in a number of hardcore and punk bands, to start a band called that, or at least make that an album cover. <laughs> and yeah, as you say, you sort of, in the last few months, you, you found this, you know, real kind of, you know, carved out a niche um, for, for the show where, where you are the go-to show for for talking to, to some of these independent creators and, and about their projects, their, the Kickstarters, and uh, the, particularly uh, the Operation Recall project uh, that Carson um, behind getting out and talking to, to all of the different enthusiasts who put forward their designs, which have been taken into the project and had their childhood dream of having uh yeah their character ideas immortalized in plastic i've gotten lucky with that our gi joe community is not an enormous community it, it feels like it sometimes but we're not aggressively big we're not star wars big and our independent creatives they're even a smaller subset of that like you guys and all of these toy manufacturers or bookmakers. And, you know, word gets around because they're all in this community. And as we've started to talk to them more and more, they're opening up more and allowing us to see part of that process. And it's a, it's a real honor and it's a pleasure. It wasn't planned. And I will keep supporting these guys with my voice and my money for as long as they'll let me with operation recall i was going to do this anyway i was going to have carson on and support the project but with a having a character in the 16 it gave me a little extra view behind the curtain and i took advantage of that by reaching out to all of the other concept creators and asking them if they wanted to just talk about collecting G.I. Joe, talk about their childhood, why they came up with their concept and their thoughts around Ron or Mark and the rest of the team working on their characters. It's been no small amount of pleasure for me uh, because I'm meeting perfect strangers and having these great two hour conversations when all I ask them for is like five to 15 minutes. And have, have you actually got around to speaking to, to virtually all of the uh, Operation Recall contributors now? I haven't talked to all of them yet. I'm trying to slot them in on the off weeks from Order of Battles normal content. But, but I'm getting there. And I'm probably taking this week off from doing that, from traveling and, and fall break and everything else. But then back to the grind. So... I've spoken to about 40% of them on mic, and then there's three or four that we're looking at schedules, and then I just have to reach out to the rest. I would, if we have time and if they're interested, love to get the creative team on as well, but they're busy creating, and uh, I don't want to take I don't want to take too much advantage of their time because, you know, they're no longer retired if they now have a job to do. And the the thing that sort of one of the things that appeals to me um, about one of the many things that appeals to me about the battle project is that it, it it's so relaxing. It's sort of very meditative, tranquil. Almost feels sort of 
Zen experience is is that something that that sort of is just is your natural style or or is it something that you've um you've been mindful about creating a, a particular sound that is a happy accident um it's actually something that i complain about a lot because no matter how excited i am <laughs> or how uninterested i am i always sound like npr or quiet storm and i'm I'm trying hard to, I don't know, emote better, I, I guess. Um, I can't do the voices that Tim Finn does or, uh, but, but it has worked in my favor. And then Joel, who is used to being in bands and used to being in front of microphones, he already has a pretty um, even voice as well. So it works out. Jason, I'm going to suggest alcohol. <laughs> before you know 20 minutes for an episode shot of vodka there you go well only vodka if it's an october guard episode ah. <laughs> um so as well we sort of typically uh this this is probably well trodden ground for for you jason but for for those of uh, for those listeners that are less familiar with uh your history how how did you encounter Joe, was it which 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 was it first? The comics, the toys, the cartoon, all three all together. And you know, what is your kind of golden era of collecting? I don't have a great childhood memory, so I couldn't tell you if it was cartoon or toy or comics that came first. But I'm going to assume that it was the toys because that makes the most sense. In 1982, I was seven, so I had. I had G.I. Joe in, in late 82 and early 83. It was wildfire on the playground. I know that I came into the comics somewhere in the late teens to early 20s. And so I, that would make the cartoon probably third, I guess, just in timing. But I loved the cartoon. However, the comic it is, was, uh, still currently, that's my definitive canon for G.I. Joe. And everything we did was based off the comic first and then into left field of childhood. And then in 87, I moved cross country, lost all my comics, most of my toys, and started over with the comics with issue 78 and 79, I believe. The red cover with Roadblock and Grunt and Lola on the cover. Mm. And um, the cover with uh, Zorana and um, Lady J fighting. So those were kind of my return to the comics and I had to go backward from there and rebuy or recollect as a teenager all the things that I lost when, when I moved across country. I played with G.I. Joe's until I was 15. And when that sort of filtered out, the comics never did. And something that I've talked about on order a few times, it's probably old hat, but after the comics ended, when Devil's Do picked them back up or Image, I was the only pull box at my shop. And my shop was the biggest comic book shop in Nashville. And so... It was the 20-teens 
before someone recognized the 63rd I Ching on my arm as the ninja symbol, or I had a G.I. Joe friend. Any attempt to get back into collecting was because I had Star Wars collector friends who were telling me, collect G.I. Joe because you like that. And even when I worked in a comic book shop, we never had a single toy collection come through the front door. All I ever bought were comic books and role-playing games. So you've kept on going with, uh, with G.I. Joe, been keeping going through the IDW era. How, how do you feel about this, the, the IDW era as, as a whole? Because, I mean, some, some diehards sort of write it off a little bit. So, uh, yeah, be interested to, to hear sort of the same time that uh you know Steven Jubber who was once your guys's co-host and Chris and everybody else was sort of getting bogged down with IDW I was as well and so I am quite a bit behind but I still buy if GI Joe is on the cover uh I buy it if a GI Joe character is anywhere in the book I'm buying it and at this point, after 20 years of being with the same comic book shop, they no longer have me in their system. So they just pull everything G.I. Joe for me. And um, so it was nice to read the last 10 or so issues and get caught back up with 298. And it's going, it, is, it does inspire me and motivate me to go back and read the 20 or 30 that I'm, that I'm behind. But by and large, I mean... I like Larry. I like the art that he's bringing on. And it's G.I. Joe. I, I look at G.I. Joe the same way as I look at Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or anything else. If 100% of G.I. Joe is for me, I might not be critical enough. And if only 10% is for me, why am I here? So I don't expect IDW2 or Larry to appease me with every issue. But by and large, he still informs my canon G.I. Joe. And some of the things that he's done in IDW, I would love to see in toy form. I think a lot of us were feeling at the time that, that between 155 to, to, to date, that maybe we were slightly oversaturated with, with the likes of the Brainwave Scanner and the Blue Moon. The Brainwave and... Scanner, yes. Uh, <laughs> Revanche is not my favorite concept. But, you know, the Brainwave Scanner is still uniquely G.I. Joe. Yeah, absolutely. It's integral to it. I mean, since Snake Hunt ended, which I think was 275, most, most of the focus of the book has kind of shifted away from, from that. It's been much less you know, heavy on the Brainwave Scanner and Blue Moon. Had, uh, flashbacks to earlier periods and spotlight issues. And, and I feel like the issues that me and Tim have been talking about over, over the last little while have been quite the return to form. And we've, you know, just injected, you know, stepping away from some of that well-trodden grounds, doing more one and done issues, introducing a bunch of new characters in the murder by assassination arc, um, having these, these guest artists on, on one issues or arc. Yeah. It's brought a, a sort of real en energy I, th I think, yeah, if, if you have gone a little bit off the boil, um, you know, this last little period of, of GIGO, a real American hero, probably um, is strong enough to, to get, you get you enthusiastic about it again. 
I, I do appreciate you guys having me on because it has certainly reignited that. And uh, I'll be catching up probably within the next month or so with everything that I'm behind on. I've thought about a, a comics era that scratches an itch, but maybe doesn't scratch it as much as you want. Uh, my my buddy in high school, when um, Bongo started publishing Simpsons comics, you know, we each, I think, tried them out very briefly, read an issue, and the art was great. The stories didn't quite grab us, and you really want to hear the characters' voices and see them move and, you know, hear the music. And uh, and he said, you know, in five or ten years when the show's canceled, I'll go back and read all the comics, <laughs> right? So show's still going, and the comics ended several years ago. Still have all the paperbacks at my store. And... um Every so often I pick them up and I flip through them and I think, will this be the month that I read or start reading some Simpsons comics? You know, do I need to scratch that itch? And um, maybe it's sort of too different and I don't need it or maybe I'm sort of over the Simpsons. Um, you know, I, I, if not for this podcast, I don't think I would have ever gone back and read The Devil's Due issues. And I very much appreciate them and reading them. And I have a friend who has several times said he's going to read the IDW G.I. Joe issues, the Larry Hama ones, and he still hasn't gotten around to it. I've given him a couple really good ones. He's bought the first two collections. And recently he said, you know, when when the series starts again at a new publisher with 301, I want to reread the whole Marvel run and I will definitely read the IDW Hama run. And I thought, uh that that might all happen that that's 300 plus <laughs> comics um i can imagine this friend like running out of steam early in the in the idw run you know i don't i don't love the first arc when hama came back um but i do feel like mark's right uh there has been a good energy in the idw larry hama run at the same time i can't help but be excited for a new publisher with a not a different take because you know all indications suggest that it's larry hama and he's already writing it but different artists uh different color and you know as good as the job as idw has done you know maybe after 10 15 years a publisher a different publisher just brings a different energy a different heat people pay attention again and i wonder if you know in six months or a year there'll be a couple issues out from this new publisher and people will say you know I, I didn't like the idw larry hama comics when i first saw them but geez there's this whole pile of issues or graphic novels that i could read i'm gonna go read them now and i sort of look forward to this small flurry of you know people buying issues off of ebay back issue websites comic book stores conventions like catching up with these good to great Larry Hama IDW issues. And and if it takes a series ending and restarting and a shift in publisher, you know, like sim this is morbid, but everyone dies. Everyone dies. One day, Larry Hama is going to die. And when that, you know, it's like David Bowie dies and a bunch of people buy his albums. Prince dies. A bunch of people buy his albums or buy them back. Oh, I used to have this or buy the greatest hits. Sort of, it forces you to evaluate and reappreciate and you know, we're going to have one or two or three of these sort of epoch changes in G.I. Joe fandom where people will go back and pick up this IDW G, uh, Larry Hama run. You know, Tim, to that point, Joel and I were just talking about this. 
with 300 on the horizon and a new publisher at locked in and it's going to happen the idw gi joe classic trades those prices are already on the rise now those those have been out of print for years and some are already very expensive like 9 and 15 but now even 1 through 3 or 4 which were everywhere even those are on the price rise already so i what you're saying is i'm looking forward to a time where there is a renaissance and people are into it i also didn't care for 155 and a half when larry first took it over but i've gone back and read them again and i like them more than i did when i first jumped into it yeah i th i think I think that first arc was definitely not the, the strongest and because that's the first you know, taste of it for, for a lot of people it's been a while they've usually come back and you never get a second chance to make a first impression as the saying goes so so I, yeah I, I think unfortunately probably the strength of that first arc kind of is the is a little bit of the note that people have to then you know, shake that, that actually it, it gets better I just want to point out to to comics fans that that here's here's a parallel because the first Devil's Due arc, I think, is really rough, and the book doesn't quite find itself until the second arc, and that first arc really almost scared me off, and then I only came back for the second arc. But you know, lots of comics work like this. The first Sandman arc, the book hasn't found itself yet in terms of art. You know, Sam Keith doesn't stick around and in terms of writing like neil gaiman is figuring out where this book sits and there are a couple dc universe appearances in the first seven issues of sandman because this is before vertigo is its own imprint and i've often thought this is this is expensive and no publisher would really do this but uh like a uh like a one of the news shows on cable recently like someone new took over uh because someone left and when they did their first episode, uh, I thought, oh, I bet that they have done two weeks of like fake practice episodes for the previous two weeks where they like wrote all the stuff and had guests and did like all the people in the control room did like graphics on screen and they probably recorded them and watched them and talked about it, but they did not broadcast them. Even if, if this like person taking over this hour of news has some experience being on camera and a publisher would never do this because there's no money for this. But I feel like, like, okay, the first Devil's Due arc, I wish they had done that as a practice and then really done a first arc. Same thing with the IDW arc. Like, okay, publishers, I think you need to spend some money. And when you're starting up something again, trying to recapture that old magic, I think you need to get one or two issues in the can and then do them again. Well, I mean, even with G.I. Joe uh, back in the 80s, like we look back at the first couple arcs of G.I. Joe very nostalgically, but it took Larry a good year to find his footing with, with that stuff. If you look at the tone and, and pacing of G.I. Joe number one and then G.I. Joe number 15 and then G.I. Joe number 20. Hmm. I do think an exception will be, let's say, 301 to 305. I think we may notice a few kinks as... Larry is working with a new editor, a new publisher, but I also think to a great extent, he's not quite um, insulated from that, but any editor or publisher 
is going to a mostly just let him work the way that he works and b uh there isn't any noticeable gap between 300 and 301 it's not like he's out of practice of doing this and so the the, the only question for me really is how much time and sort of emotional space for the characters and the reader uh, I mean, time in terms of setting, you know, like three months later, or one year later, um, is there between 300 and 301? I don't think a new publisher uh, is going to sort of stumble out of the gate with the first few issues the way that I feel IDW did and Devils Do did. Now, that said, I still think it's, you know, Devils Do had a real challenge and they pulled it off and IDW had a real challenge and you know, they pulled it off. It, it, it's just that I don't love the results. Sure. I mean, Devil's Due was young men who were fans trying to follow in footsteps. So there, I give a lot of grace to the early Devil's Due, uh, but I don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. With 301, to me, I think the stumbling block is more going to be on, is it a new artist? Is it a new colorist? Is it someone who is brand new to interpreting Larry's scripts. Yeah, will 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 it be someone who draws characters really well but can't quite get the vehicles? Right. Or will it be someone color or art who's uh, overwhelmed by all of the reference that they need to get right and are they given enough time to get it right or let's say they get something wrong is there enough time built into the schedule for an editor to sort of catch the mistake? Like oh no no this this guy has to be green not purple. This guy has to be dead not alive. Right. Well, I uh, I am I am only optimistic about three hundred one. I have I have no reservations. I'm not worried. I think it's going to be good or great. Correct. Yeah, I agree. Pathetic. So in the news for people in the UK, um, so uh, less interest to you guys, but we've got uh, the MCM London Comic Convention, uh, October 28th to the 30th, and a very uh, rare appearance from the G.I. Joe brand team coming all the way over to Blighty. Emily, famous for the uh, all of the Pulse um, live streams and whatnot, uh, where is uh, is going to be in attendance in uh, the big smoke as we call it? Mark, Mark is is Blighty uh, a, a city or town, or is that a, is that <laughs> a British is that that's, a British nickname for biscuits or something? That's that's England. It's, it's the, yeah, the, the you know the motherland, the fatherland. Blighty. Okay. So so uh, yeah, it's appealing. I might I might um, I might even um, be tempted to to visit uh, myself. This week we had the G.I. Joe 40th anniversary hardcover came out, so we can actually see what is inside that. Uh, I'm uh, Mine's downstairs, but I'm going to pretend I'm holding it. I'm in fact holding it right now, and I can tell you about it. <laughs> Go for um, it, Tim. To my, to my pleasant surprise, it's a hardcover, and the binding is sewn. It's not glued, uh, which if you don't know book binding, that, that's better. Sewn is better. And... It's 30 bucks, which is really surprising that this book has this binding for that low of a price. And as a comparison, 
the um, Rise of Serpentor hardcover from just a few weeks earlier. I think it's a little longer, but I, I can't quite remember. But it is a little taller, and that is a $59.99 hardcover. That's more like the um, uh, IDW collection hardcovers for Transformers, Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe. So the 40th anniversary cover, uh, hardcover is a is a really good sort of deal and also object. And uh, though I have some uh, thoughts about the actual 40th anniversary special, the the remake of Silent Interlude, this is this is a great book to give someone. It's almost a it's almost a GI Joe greatest hits because it has issue one, 21, the 21 remake, the layouts for 21 remake. Uh, 50 and 24 the commander escapes by russ heath 26 snake eyes the origin part one asterisk i'm going to come back to this also is it 80 does it have 86 uh plus 86 which is the uh original gi joe issue isn't it yeah it's the it was the then 25th anniversary of the original joe i'm just another guy named joe Um, i thought you'd be taller yeah (laughs) uh so it's it's sort of a it's a bit of a larry hama showcase because of course he did art for 21 and 26. And the only sort of problem I have with it is that it has 26, but not 27. That's a miss. And it's got issue 50, which was in the Serpenter volume, which came out earlier in the this month. So if they yeah. just switched out 50 uh, with uh, with the, the second part of Snake Eyes, The Origin, then... Um, I think in IDW's mind, the audience for these two books is different because one is... Uh, not really a story arc, but it's it is a chronological run of issues that you can pretend is a story arc. You know that issue and a half with Serpentor, and then also some other issues of GI Joe that were published right then, because that's more expensive, because it's a larger book, because it has new artwork on the cover. Um, I feel like that is a slightly different sort of marketing push than the 40th anniversary hardcover, which is shorter. I mean less tall. I don't mean shorter in terms of pages, and I feel like that is. This is all conjecture, but I feel like one of these is like the gift you give someone else. And one of these is for, I don't know, hardcore G.I. Joe fans. But the 40th anniversary book, if you missed the 40th anniversary issue, still have some of my store. This is certainly more expensive than that. What was it? $8 comic. This is a $30 hardcover. And if you are a Joe fan, you probably already have one and 50 and 26. And I actually don't give I don't give IDW a hard time for reprinting 50 and 26 and won so many times, even in the last three years, because those are great issues. And uh, though they are some of the better selling issues, uh, you know, there are always tens of thousands of lapsed readers for a series like this and hundreds of thousands of potential new readers. Uh, and, you know, why not? Why not go with some of the best stuff or the most fondly remembered stuff? If you did not get the 40th anniversary single issue and you can spend about $23 more, I would just go for the 40th anniversary special because it's it's a nice book and it has some of the stuff that was in the silent interlude 25th anniversary. What was it? The, what was the hardcover? Hold on. I'm grabbing it next to me. That's right. Right under my, yes, the, excuse me, the silent interlude 30th anniversary edition, that skinny hardcover uh, that Mark Bolomo helped put together, which had 21, the layouts to 21, and then the uh, G.I. Joe Origins uh, wordless issue that came much later. When the 
40th anniversary issue special came out recently. I said I really wish this had had Hama's layouts, and this 40th anniversary hardcover does have the layouts that were in the 30th anniversary silent interlude hardcover. I'm done, period. Oh, and, and, a, and a nice introduction, a nice introduction, two pages of text at the beginning of the 40th anniversary hardcover out this past week by a friend of the show and uh, G.I. Joe creative consultant for the comics, Diana Davis. Have we heard if Diana is coming on to the new publisher? Because she has been really a great addition to that in IDW. We have not heard one way or the other, but if I was to guess, I would guess since Hama asked for her a couple years back to join at IDW, I would guess that Hama has made a similar request of a new publisher. That would be awesome. And reading the introduction from the preview that was online, my guess is that we might see this introduction in issue 300, because it does seem to be written from the perspective of the issue, you know, 40th anniversary, issue 300 perspective, and there will be some extra pages in issue 300. So um, let's let's find out in a couple of months' time whether that prediction uh, is correct or not. I'm really, I'm really hoping 300 is double-sized and not oversized, because oversized is not as many pages. And uh, I really want a double-sized issue. And I feel like, I feel like IDW owes us, because there have been so many issues this last year without a letters page. And I know that it's much more expensive to have a page with story and art than a page of letters from fans. So those aren't equal, but I want a lot of extra pages in this final <laughs> issue. I want art pages. I want interview pages, you know, with with Haman, with Gallant, and with Jay Brown, and with Neil Yutake, and Tom Waltz can can say goodbye for a couple paragraphs, and Diana can say goodbye for a couple paragraphs, or reprint this introduction from the 40th hardcover. Oh, the, just out of curiosity, Tim, the character profiles and vehicle gallery at the back, what's that? Um, it's a couple scans of the toy blueprints that you have seen in that Mark Belomo put into the G.I. Joe IDW collection hardcovers. And it's the sort of two per page. They look like they're, uh, uh, shoot, who drew, I'm blanking. Uh, they look like they're Frank Springer. It's, it's the, um, it's the like drawn dossiers that are in, I don't know, yearbook one or right. your book three, and then a couple of the pinups from the back of issue one. So in terms of that sort of extra stuff, it's fun and it adds, you know, it's it's like it's like you open up a, a box with like a birthday present and someone's thrown in some Hershey's Kisses, you know? And you're like, oh, it's a little extra. Not not a revelation, not not anything rare, but a, a nice little nice little bit at the end. Good. So we also had an Ask Me Anything AMA on Reddit this week um, with Larry Hammer ask, answering uh, various questions in the guise of Ninja Boy 442. Jason, did you get a chance to look at the AMA and did, did anything jump out for you? I've been reading through it uh, this morning. Nothing really jumped out at me. A lot of the questions are things that he's answered time and time again. You know, we we know that Spook became Snake Eyes. We know that uh, he wrote the file cards for a number of years. We know that he named them dossiers. 
I don't know if there was anything in particular that jumped out at me as a new and interesting take on Larry, but had I known that the AMA was happening, maybe I could have taken time to put a question together. Uh, so next time. Tim, what about you? Did, did you have a read through? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I saw Diana Davis post on Facebook right as it was starting and I managed to see a little of it happen uh, live. There are a couple that um, jump out at me. Uh, the Ace Man asks, what is the story of Shipwreck? I understand that you created everyone except for him. Where did he come from? Larry Hama says, I didn't create Shipwreck. That's news to me. And I think this gets to an important point, which is that uh, the word create has a specific legal definition in the world of publishing and uh, film and television. And, you know, when in a, a Marvel comic, it says Spider-Man created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, that that means that someone has signed a contract and maybe there's money changing hands. Maybe not anymore since those two creators have passed away. Maybe their estates or their families are getting some money. And I think people in the world of G.I. Joe, fans and also some of the people who made G.I. Joe, use those words with with one sort of strength or definition when a lawyer might use another one. And, you know, like Ron Rudat first visually concepted many, many G.I. Joe characters. Uh, and for the first several years, let's say effectively all of them or almost all of them. And Larry Hama gave them names and backgrounds and personalities and... You know, and then we have a character like the Baroness where she shows up in issue one and it in the timeline, it looks like that predates any work that Ron Rudat would have done on a figure at Hasbro. And uh, Hasbro, I don't think, is interested in giving like creator credit as a legal definition to any of these people. You know, it's like, who makes G.I. Joe? Hasbro makes G.I. Joe. And um, <laughs> Shipwreck, I think, is is more an invention of Ron Friedman. Uh, for the 1985 miniseries that kicks off that year of the cartoon. And I don't have all of my dates in front of me for when the toy was being designed and when the show was being written and when, you know, an artist like Russ Heath would have drawn a model sheet for Shipwreck. Um, but there are times where the the timeline of this stuff is either not well-remembered or us sort of fan researchers would have to piece it together. And I think sometimes someone asks a question at a convention or on a Reddit AMA, and they might be disappointed by the answer because that legal definition is different from sort of a general definition. So, you know, did, did Hama create Shipwreck? Hama did a lot of development work on Shipwreck and maybe like not uppercase C, but lowercase C, Hama created Shipwreck. I don't know if Hama wrote the dossier before Ron Friedman wrote that first episode for September 85. Uh, and then two quick ones. L Boogie, that's the letters E-L, L Boogie 7 asks, did you base any G.I. Joes off of yourself? Because we all know that uh, Larry Hama somewhat famously bases all the characters that he writes in comics, not just G.I. Joe, right? Wolverine, Nth Man, off of people he knows. And his response not really. And, <laughs> and I I do think uh, I know Larry Hama a bit, 
and I have read a lot of G.I. Joe comics, but I, I certainly don't know all of the people who show up in all of his comics as sort of friends and family of his. I, I can't make a master list of that. You know, I do know two characters from Nth Man or like particular people he knows from Marvel, for example. But I have thought for a long time that two primary characters in the world of G.I. Joe are not sort of one-to-one analogs for Larry, but very much speak and act as Larry or like a, a version of Larry. Um, but yes, technically, is he basing anyone directly off himself? I, I can, I no, I can see that. And then a, a third, a third quick one. Elk Groundbreaking four eight five asks, "Are there any non-binary Joes or Cobra?" And Hama says, "Probably, but they're not making a big deal about it." I served with a guy everybody called Bambi, but he did his job and was stand up, so nobody cared. And that reminds me uh, of uh, Percy Pinkerton from Stanley's uh, Howling Commandos, Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos. Right there is a there is a character in this. 1960s kind of war, but kind of superhero Marvel comic, who is lightly depicted as gay, but not much is done with it. Um, sort of as much as you could do in the 60s with a character without saying so. But there are a couple, you know, visual cues, and and I also think this speaks to how you know, with a few exceptions like Destro and the Baroness, or Cobra Commander and his son Billy, or Snake Eyes and Scarlet, um, you know, or like this one recent scene with uh, Spirit Iron Knife's parents. We don't get a lot into the sort of outside lives of of Joe characters, right? We really just sort of see them doing the job. That question stuck out to me as well. I did like the other one that he, when someone asked about the hate from the Snake Eyes movie and making S- Snake Eyes Asian and, you know, his answer to that being that you know, an Asian kid in the back was like, why? And at a convention, got, yes. at a, at a G.I. Joe panel at a, at a convention. Right. And then as he's talked about for years about making Storm Shadow into a Joe, he was like, you're right. And I need to fix that. And so both of those questions stuck out to me because they're outside of the realm of what he normally asks. Uh, but I didn't think about talking about them here since they weren't, um, part of the the normal process of what he's doing. So I'm glad you brought it up. The, I, I spotted a couple. One of them was uh, asked from Envy Centron, um, who was asking about the comic containing sequences or events that reflected his personal experience from his time serving. And uh, Larry said, recently there was a bit about a soldier writing home to his mum and telling her what he really did in the course of the day. And all the others in his hooch gang up on him and tell him, you never tell your mum what you do. And they help him make up non-threatening stuff. That was real. So that was the recent uh, Storm Shadow solo issue where there's a flashback to Snake Eyes in Nam writing home to his mum. So I guess that uh, that Snake Eyes scene was uh, Larry's own experiences. Uh, there was a particularly great question, which was probably the highlight of the whole AMA from uh, Talking Joe Comics. Uh, and that person asked, what is it that appealed about the Blue Ninja element as a driving antagonist for the IDW era? Do you find it more palatable that robotic foes such as Blue Ninjas and Bats are destroyed versus a flesh and blood enemy 
where it's perhaps a bit more grisly. And Ninja Boy replies, yes, you can decapitate a robot and that's fine. That wouldn't w- work so hotsy-totsy <laughs> with a real person. Shall we talk about issue 298? Warning team. As the sands of time descend, temporal disruption has set in, and it is here that we must leave our brave adventurers, Mark, Tim, and Jason. Remain patient, as next week we will pick up where we leave them, as they delve into the details of G.I. Joe issue 298. Join us then, if you dare.